I also started to play around with some of the latest in AI and to be specific, like large language models. And what that just means is these incredible models that you can take reams of text, which is like, what is a parent's life if not school newsletters and text messages and like meal plans and like text, just reams of text and then do something with it. Dive into more examples, but start to play with this and start to see magic, the kind of magic, the missing piece kind of magic reached out to the folks at OpenAI because I had that relationship previously at Poppy and got connected in. Turns out that this is a fantastic space to leverage capabilities of AI. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Startup Parent Podcast. This is the show where we get to talk to working parents, entrepreneurs, and business leaders about what it looks like to raise kids while also building companies. If you're in the thick of it with your career or your business and you've got little ones at home, then you are in the right place. I'm your host, Sarah K. Peck. Here's a parenting problem that millions of parents everywhere need help with. All of those emails and texts, flyers and WhatsApp notifications and forms and all of the things. The list goes on. And here's the problem. Each of us everywhere is usually manually adding each event to our individual calendars and then inviting our spouses or our other caretakers, forwarding the emails to the people that need them. Just think about how much time is spent every single day trying to be the executive assistant to your family. This is where AI comes in. We are living in an age where we can most likely use AI technology to process, sort, organize, and summarize all of this information so that we can solve for this information deluge. What? Yes, we can radically reduce the number of hours we spend on parenting logistics. That's what I'm going to talk about today with our guest. Avni Patel-Thompson is an entrepreneur, and she is obsessed with solving the modern problems of parenting. Almost three years ago, I got to talk to Avni when she was focused on solving the problem of not having a village, and she shared with me her vision for Poppy, a childcare company that helps parents build out their support team. If you haven't listened to it yet, go back and listen to the episode just before this. We talk about her vision, what she was building, as well as the painful process of what it's like to shut down a company and why she ended up closing Poppy. So this is where entrepreneurship gets so fascinating. Sometimes people are focused on a specific product and they really want to bring it to the world. Or others are focused on a specific problem. Avni strikes me as the kind of entrepreneur who is so deeply committed to solving some of the gnarliest problems of parenting. And she has been relentless in pivoting, in experimenting, in exploring, in building MVPs, and also in calling it when something doesn't seem to work. She has now spent eight years trying to solve these problems, and I got to talk to her in early 2023 to hear about what's happening now with Milo. She told me that AI is this magic that has been missing, and the possibilities that are now unfolding have the potential to change how we parent in such cool ways. One of the things that I really love doing is looking for other examples of success. The news media is constantly profiling these huge, enormous companies that sell for hundreds of millions of dollars. And we see all this noise about the size of the round, the size, the amount of money. But what about examples of success that more people can actually relate to? Selling a company for $1 million, $5 million, $10 million, this can be a life-changing amount of money for people, even though it'll never get profiled in the news. If you want examples of success that you can actually relate to, I love They Got Acquired. It is a website all about founders who have sold their company for six or seven figures. It's the kind of exit that's usually done under the radar, but they're so achievable. They're so much more desirable for so many people. They share tips in their newsletter to help you build a better business, to show you what it looks like and what to expect during the sale process, and all the things you maybe didn't even think to ask. The tips they share can help you build a better business. So if you're interested in selling your company, they are a one-stop shop for helping entrepreneurs with their exits. Get on their email list at theygotacquired.com slash newsletter. Hi, Avni. Thank you for joining us again. Hi, thanks for having me again. I mean, two years went by in a blip. Maybe it was three. Nobody I know who is a parent or working on childcare can count. We spoke right at the beginning of the pandemic, and 
you were in the process of building a company called Milo. Are you still working on that? Where are you at today? I am very much so. And lots of twists and turns that we can certainly kind of get into more detail. After two and a half to three years, I was at a point last June, so probably what, nine months ago, where I was hovering over a email that was going to shut the company down. Actually, I kind of felt that I'd been at a point where I tried a ton of different things to try to figure out like, what is technology's role in helping us with manage the invisible load? And just not finding the right kind of tools and traction of like actually solving the problem. I've talked about this through Poppy and for this, I'm not in this to commercialize a product. I mean, I am, but a product that works. I'm not in this to just build a thing and then make a buck and then move on. If that was the case, I would be doing a lot of other things, a lot of other categories. Yeah. Was got to last summer and really I've had felt like I'd tried so many different things and all the ways that I could see that I could create something that worked, but was lightweight and was affordable and all the things and just wasn't finding it. Mm. Going through that hard journey of trying to figure out, oh, what does it mean to like shut down another company and then move on to something else? There was something through that summer where I had a couple of my investors kind of encourage me to take a little bit of space because I think burnout and a lot of these things were really playing a role. And so I did. I took a couple of weeks in July, went with my family to Europe and just really allowed the company to be sort of in the back of my brain. And I came back and I felt like I had one more go. Like I had one more idea. By that time, though, by the way, I had also let go of my last engineer. So it was back down to me. Okay. It was just me. And I put something out there that I thought could work and did it just myself with the air table and front. It started to work. And then at the same time, I also started to play around with some of the latest in AI and to be specific, like large language models. And what that just means is these incredible models that you can take reams of text, which is like, what is a parent's life if not school newsletters and text messages and like meal plans and like text, just reams of text and then do something with it. Dive into more examples, but start to play with this and start to see magic, the kind of magic, the missing piece kind of magic. Reached out to the folks at OpenAI because I had that relationship previously at Poppy and got connected in. Turns out that this is a fantastic space to leverage capabilities of AI and were recently funded by OpenAI and had a chance to just work alongside a bunch of their incredibly brilliant researchers. We're coming out of that with a completely new platform. I just brought on a co-founder who's incredible, uh, CTO, who's just 10 years in AI and yeah. ML. And I feel like, I would say a new life, but it is just a continuation of this crazy, and I, what I would say like crazier yeah. journey that I certainly signed up for. So yes, Milo is very much still going. I'm more excited than ever, mostly just because I can actually see the thing that we're going to be able to give parents in like mere weeks. And it gets me so excited. I mean, we have families already paying and using it and it's working. So if you see me really, really excited, it's because of that. But man, it's been a journey to get to this day. Wow. I think one of the things you're speaking to, too, is people don't see that you can spend three years working on a problem and not solving it and not solving it, oh, not yeah. solving it, not solving it and feeling devastated and not being able to pay people and letting people go and questioning, do am I going to cancel this? So just for listeners who haven't listened to the last episode, I want to catch them up a little bit. When we last spoke, you wanted to disappear some of the work from parenting from parents' lives. That was the phrase that you used. Yep. And yep. you were really good at building no-code solutions. How do I first build this with just a spreadsheet? Like, what can we do? Is that still the mission of Milo? Can you give us, like, yep. what is Milo for people listening today, I guess? To fill in a little bit of the gaps... For me, I've been on an eight-year journey now to figure out what is the role of technology in making modern parenthood feel more tenable, feel light, feel delightful, words that getting most of us parents don't even reach for. And I don't mean it on a service level. That's right. It's why Poppy was in childcare. Like I really am trying to go at the hardest, gnarliest, most anxiety-filling problems. Poppy went at childcare because for me, like that is almost like one of the most fundamental questions. 
I think I'm always on a mission of how do I build parents their modern village? Poppy was like, well, let's go put the people actually into the lives of parents and let's figure that out. That for the reasons that we've already explored didn't work. So then this one was, well, if it isn't childcare, then it's this invisible load that I feel dragged down by. I joke with my husband that both of us run our own separate companies and organizations, but I have been this other organization that I have post-its and like text messages to be able to run it with and my brain. And it's already crazy up there, so I don't need more crazy. I started this because I really fundamentally believe if we're going to pour billions of dollars in productivity and communication and all this other kind of stuff on our work lives, then we deserve this for the work of predominantly, this is work. I guess I want to say that. It is work, full stop. And therefore, there should be tools, there should be machines. It happens to be the case that women disproportionately do this work. So then it becomes like a gender equity thing. But at the end of the day, the reason I said we need to disappear the work, when I started diving into the space, there were sort of three steps. You needed to recognize the work, make the invisible visible. You needed to reduce the work. So you needed to just kill the amount of work with technology that anybody needed to do. And then at the end, you needed to divide the work. So what is left, you can then divide up equitably, whatever that makes sense. There's lots of people looking at the divide up part. How do you make it more fair and equitable and all that kind of stuff? And I think that's an absolutely critical conversation, but that's not my thing. My thing is how do you use technology to disappear and reduce the amount of work that anybody needs to do. I don't think it's a really great thing. Like, I think it's a necessary thing for my me to have a conversation with my husband and say, who is going to own registering for soccer and like the whole soccer situation? We should have that conversation. We should figure out who it is. It shouldn't all just naturally and by default fall to me. But I see zero reason that neither like my husband nor I should have to get an email and manually input those dates into a calendar. That is a very poor use of anybody's, any human's time. That is what I've started off very early, seeing and wanting to solve. The mission has not deviated. I know what it feels like to have this invisible load in my head. I know what it feels like for it to be uneven between like all the information's in my head and how do I give it to my nanny, my husband, my mom. I say that I've been wandering the desert for three years, but it's a lot of hill climbing for folks that have also used that analogy of you have to climb a lot of hills to see, is this the one? Is this the one? The thing is that Milo, I've realized in retrospect, is almost diametrically opposite to Poppy in the sense that with Poppy, I knew what the problem was and I knew what the product was. We just had to build a better product that was more efficient and better and for both sides. You know what it is. I need a sitter or a caregiver. And I need someone to show up to my door that is phenomenal and does the things safely and well and like delightfully and then goes and then payments happen and all that kind of stuff. We know what the product is. So that's why from day one, I will say like Poppy had sort of this version of product market fit. It was incredibly hard to grow it and scale it and do all those things. But that was that challenge. Milo's the opposite. Everyone knows what the problem is. Nobody knows what the product is. Is it a shared calendar? Is it a shared to-do list? Is it an SMS assistant? Is it a virtual assistant? Is it an actual assistant? Right. Don't know. That ended up being the work of now we can see three years nearly that we had to go climb all of these hills to go figure out what is the product. And the way you do that is you build a thing and you test the thing and then you see what happens. Is there magic? Is there people taking it? Is it working? And the beautiful thing is when you live the problem yourself, you can tell for yourself. You can't f- yourself. I built an incredible platform. Our team built an incredible platform. And yet I dreaded Sundays when I would have to go in and create the plan that would inevitably then inform all the people and all the things. I think we would have talked before August of 21. In August of 21 or like July, I ended up making one of the hardest decisions, but we had an incredible team of six and it just wasn't working. This first version of the platform was beautiful. It was fully featured. It did all the things, but it wasn't working. We had people paying, hundreds of people paying, but it wasn't working. You could tell. Made the hard decision to actually stop supporting that product, let the team go, stayed on with only one engineer, and tried to keep on going and figuring it out. 
I think this is one of the most hardest parts of being a founder is that having that honesty with yourself to say, do we have it or do we not? Because we're in this for zeros and ones. We're not in this to have like a nice little product that sort of does a thing. And even if hundreds of people are paying and even if people desperately want it, we're still not there. Can I pause you for a second here and ask about that, that decision-making process, that self-awareness process? I think this is really challenging to do, to admit that something's not working, because part of being an entrepreneur is to kind of have that chutzpah, that belief, that drive of like, maybe this will work, maybe this will work. You have to believe in something before someone else does. And that sometimes we can get into, I don't want to say delusional, but to that space where it We're just clinging. We're holding on. We're hoping it'll work. What was it like to make that decision? And do you have retrospective? Do you have advice for other people going through this? Because I would imagine every founder out there is dealing with or will deal with something like this. In this instance, it was made easier by the fact that I was a second time founder, that I've had to do this over and over again in my previous company. And I think in this time, it didn't make it any easier. It is excruciating to have to let people go who have taken a bet on you and on this thing. And when there was nothing else, and they poured their hearts and souls into it just because they don't have the title of founder or whatever, like they don't get to control that, how long they get to stay on that journey. It still is excruciating. What you can't ignore, though, especially as a second time founder, is the signal of what you have to do. It becomes even more clear that my job isn't to commercialize some nice to have superficial product. It was to go solve this problem in a big way. And if it's not happening, then I'm looking, staring at the edge, which is there are lots of negative things to being underfunded as a woman or the space that we're dealing with and all the kind of stuff. But I will say the beautiful thing that I get that I see it as a benefit is it keeps me super sure. Right. I can't be bloated. I can't be delaying decisions, all this kind of stuff. I have to keep it lean and I have to earn my rights to keep on going. So that decision in the middle of 21 was excruciatingly hard because you took this like incredible team and it was the first concession that this is not working and that we have to try something completely new. That was incredibly hard, but it was absolutely the right decision. Bought another year and a bit of runway and then continued to iterate with just one engineer. So just the two of us, we can move faster. We can experiment even more. I will say the harder point came as like at the year mark on that in the middle of 22, where then I tried now nimbly and quickly and all this kind of stuff, a lot of different things. And still it wasn't working. That was the point where it was, am I crazy or should I keep on going? That was the hard one. Like I swear, like my journal and stuff like that, half the journal entries are starting with, am I crazy or am I wrong? Right. Because it was like, that's where the doubt came in. In the middle of 21, it was, I knew I had to make this hard decision and buy myself more time, but I had a ton more hypotheses in my head of like what we could try and we could do this and we could do all this, all that kind of stuff. It was like an experiment that you tested and you're like, okay, this isn't working. And that was easier. That's really fascinating. Yeah. This comes through in a lot of the other stuff that I'll speak about. But again, I have like a chemistry undergrad. I very much think right. as a scientist, Coming back to your question of when do you know that enough is enough or like when you know you're supposed to persist, I really do think of it as a scientific endeavor, which is like I set out to answer this top question and I have all of these hypotheses to test and try. And until I do those and until I don't run out of like anything or runway, then I keep on going until something changes that makes either that irrelevant or not possible or whatever else it is that I keep on going. But in the middle of 22, I tried pretty much everything that I could think of. And coming to this conclusion that I don't think that tech as we had it could solve it in the way that I needed it to. And that perhaps it was more of a human problem. But that still didn't sit well with me because I could still see things like that software email and not be convinced that it was an entirely human problem. That there had to be a rule of technology. I was just missing something. And I couldn't articulate to you what that thing was. Uh-huh. I went back to let that last engineer go. And that's when it gets really lonely. And that's when it gets really tough. At that point, I was starting to look for other things. I was starting to brace myself for, I probably have to go get a job 
or something. There's different motivations for different people. But I think in my motivation, the idea of me having to go work for somebody else or on something else when I still had so much passion for this thing actually pushed me to say, is there anything else you can think of to like prolong this show? And I think at that point, I can think of one thing. And I don't know how it's going to work and I don't know all of this stuff. But the thing that I want is I want to just send everything to somebody else and just have them deal with it. That's what I want. I don't know how to make it happen, but that's what I, the mom, the human, want. So then I was like, okay, well, let's just see if we could do that. Let's just see if I could be the human that some number of families can just send all their stuff to me. Send me your school calendars. Send me all your newsletters. Send me your soccer things. Send me just, you need more bananas. Send me all that stuff. Just send it by text. Send it by email. I will figure it out. I will organize it and I will get it back to your work calendar and I will send it back to you like an SMS reminder. That's all I promised. And I started with just three families. They paid me $40 a month to do this. We got going and it started to work. The fact that it was like super simple, just by SMS, both partners could deal with that. The fact that it ended up on people's calendars. And then I was like, okay, well, three is nice, but we need more. So we got it up to 10 families and got that going. And then once you start, 10 doesn't sound like a lot, I know, from like a lot of people. But when you start having 10 families or like even 20 or 25 users, once you take in partners and caregivers and stuff, I mean, you have some real data. And these were families across the country. The other thing that was remarkable was these were not San Francisco families. These were families in Lafayette and Cincinnati and Asheville and San Antonio and Houston. And I'm like, oh man, this is like all the people that people have been super skeptical would say like, are going to pay me any money. Yet here are all these people, the same problem and happy to like dump it off. What I realized is what all of us want is someone to give it to and to create like a force field around us so that I can just be my awesome self and I can use my time with my kids or my work or my partner or whatever the heck it is. Then marrying that with the capability of AI, which I will say is like the complete missing piece that I could not have built this company before the fall of 22. And that a lot of the work that came before was honestly just living to see the day when this was now possible. I have very much that story. Um, Not every story is that story. This story is about that story. And then you can take that and make it all kind of like, it's still not perfect and still though, but it works and you can make it happen. So yeah. Wait, I'm like getting shivers and tingles because I love this story so much. And I have such an exciting feeling about AI. There's so many cool things. And I know that people are also like, oh, I want to get into that. But before we do, can you talk about how were you funded with your first team and how were you funded during this one engineer solo journey of trying all these things? Talk about that. Yeah. So it's all the same funding. So I raised pre-seed and I raised pre-seed with an incredible set of investors, incredibly patient set of investors, which I will also touch on. There were a few that I will completely credit for me still standing here because like they were the ones that were still cheerleading and saying like, no, 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 you still have something, keep on going. I raised close to like a little bit under like 2 million in pre-seed. The point of pre-seed is get to a product. Here's a big problem, a big space. Go figure out what a product could be. And that was also it, which is if I had raised this pre-seed to go do that, then I needed to let this money last until I had done that. That's why even with the first team, even with the like the second, even all the way through to this fall, I was trying to make that amount of money work for finding what the product was. And now that we figured out the product, now we're on to like the next seed kind of phase and all that kind of stuff. But most people don't need to let it last for that long or it's hard to make that last for that long. Honestly, I had raised that money explicitly to say like, here's an important problem. Here's some hypotheses on how we're going to go after and like test it and do it. I imagined we were going to get there way faster and then raise the next and then do all the things. Turned out not to be the case. But luckily, not luckily, I won't say luck in this case, because it was through those excruciating choices to be able to make that money last. And then that got me to a point where then we could bring on additional funding from like OpenAI and then take it to like the next level. 
I mean, that's remarkable. And I think that's also something really hard to do. I've seen founders run out of money. I've seen them hit that cliff. And making $2 million last almost, when did you raise? 2021? No, no, 2020. Right in the height of COVID. Yeah, making that last this long is really stretching it out. You don't have to give specifics, but I'm curious, did you pay yourself according to Y Combinator recommendations? How are you funding yourself? And was it too little, just right, too much? Tell us about that. I think I've spoken before to like the financial challenges of like trying to make poppy work, trying to make like no salary work. When I started Milo, it was a very clear kind of conversation with my husband that it needed to be a good enough kind of salary. Still, yeah. certainly like if I look at my peers or things like that, it had to be something where I wasn't worried about money and my husband wasn't worried about money on a day-to-day basis. As a second-time founder, that's also why I raised money from day one, because I gave away bits of my company when maybe I didn't need to quite that early because I knew I had to pay myself. Different people's choices are different people's choices. That was one of the things. Like I've had to be good and kind to myself, and I don't know if it's kindness or whatever realistic, is that these are the terms upon which I can do my best work. And we, the company, needs me to do my best work if we're going to make this thing work. It's a number that makes our family just work and like understand that we've got like two kids and like all the different costs and stuff like that. But it's not a first-time founder when I was like, can I justify this? And I get all of those things. It was just so stressful in the past where willingly going into a repeat founder situation means that I willingly am going into this for the next 10 years, at least. Right. Who knows what it looks like, but we have to be prepared for me to want to do this for the next 10 years. And if that's the case, then we need to know financially that it makes sense not just for me, I could deal with whatever apartment or whatever, but I have made other choices in my life with my partner and my kids and stuff. And that has sort of necessitated that ever since the beginning, I've certainly taken a paycheck. It's like sort of varied as it's been needed to, but the money doesn't go away just because like you're obviously kind of always thinking about opportunity cost, especially at my point in my career where I'll just be super honest. The first part of my career, I worked really, really hard to be financially not only stable, but like well off. And that's a lot of the choices of like my choice of MBA, the choice of like companies that I've worked at. Find yourself trying to answer a calling to go into a space that maybe there's some financial upside down the road somewhere, but you don't do it for the financial reasons. You do it because you really want to go solve this problem or whatever. It's still always in the back of your head. When I'm talking about the middle of 22, when I was really in my crazy, yes, there was like half of that, but it was the other half of when do you cut bait and go start making some money or start digging out of that right. hole you've just dug? That is a very real consideration. We don't talk about it as much. Founders like do talk about it amongst ourselves, maybe a little bit. Most founders are quite a bit younger, so it's not quite mm. relevant in your late 20s, early 30s. But once you continue, like at some point, you have to sort of look yourself in the face and say like, are you really going to do this? And is this really going to work out? I don't love thinking about money more than it's necessary. But again, when you're in a partnership and like you have to think about summer vacation, are we traveling? Are we doing some of these other things? When all your peers are, it becomes a very relevant conversation. It's your life. If you're spending 10 years, it's your life. And I think you said two things that are really important. One of them is about not worrying, that stress of worry. And I think that's super important. I've seen a lot of founders and I've been at a startup where they underpaid themselves. You know, I was in in Manhattan and they're living hours away. And then when they finally get an office, they have to commute because they can't afford an apartment. And these are guys in their 27, 28. And finally, the investors are like, pay yourself enough so you can live close to the office. Exactly. I think that's one side of the incentive. Don't worry. If you can't make daycare and you're constantly having your kids at home, then you're not going to be able to make a good product. But of course, the other side is if you spend all your runway, you're toast. So there's some good barriers here. And you have to find the balance in the middle of what can I do? The second thing you said is so that I can be in it for 10 years, right? And each person's number is going to be different. If you're living in San Francisco, it might be much higher. Investors know that cost of living is higher. 
But even if you're living in Ohio, you have to be able to put yourself in the best conditions to solve the problem and work on it for 10 years. We'll be right back. Are you curious what it would look like to sell your business? Thinking about selling a business can be super intimidating and overwhelming. How do you do it? Where do you find a buyer? What do you need to know? Do you need a lawyer? How much should you sell it for? If you're going through this buying process for the first time, check out They Got Acquired. Theygotacquired.com is a place where they share stories of founders who have sold their company, they give you advice for doing it well, and they walk you through the process, especially if you are a first-time seller. Go check it out at theygotacquired.com. And if you are curious about it, go to theygotacquired.com slash curious. Okay, we're back. Now I want to get back to this exciting like AI, right? We've got AI coming out. So when did you raise? And also, what does that mean? Tell us about what this product does. So I want to be super specific. Listen, this is me on whatever, on six of really going deep in like AI. Like I, like most everyone else, was keeping like a tab on both Web3 and AI at a very cursory kind of level. And it wasn't until like September where I was chatting with some friends and like I'd done Y Combinator. So YC had this weekend where they had like homecoming but it's sort of like an alumni weekend where everyone descended in san francisco and it was one of my favorite types of gatherings it's because you take super curious and super ambitious people and you put them all into a space and then they just start talking and so i was there during that weekend and honestly i had gotten onto the plane with the intention of trying to see if i could find someone startup that i would be like interested enough to go work for that literally went with that kind of intention. Three things happened. One was I had a conversation with one of my investors and I was sort of trying to like tiptoe him. He had been like, and still is one of the biggest kind of cheerleaders. And even at this point where I was like, I don't know, like, I just don't know if I have something. But I was showing him on my phone because I was trying to keep a version of Milo on my phone just so I could use it. Even if I shut the company down, I still needed it. And he's like, wait a minute, if you still need it this much, you still have something, go figure it out. And I was like, I don't think he gets it. But I sort of held that in my head. The second thing that happened was in the evening, there was this gathering time where like there's had like food trucks and stuff and like all the founders came in. And I was just sort of walking it, talking with like a fellow founder and sort of like lamenting. I was like, shit, I'm probably gonna have to go get a job and all this kind of stuff. A guy runs up to me and taps me on the shoulder and goes, are you Abney? And I'm like, what? Yeah. And he's like, oh, Milo. And yeah, I use your product and it's amazing. And it's been like completely life-changing for my wife and I. And I'm looking at him. I'm like, I don't understand. Anyways, the next 15 minutes, he goes on to talk about how he and his wife have had a new way of being able to like, because they were both texting things in. In my sense, his wife was using it, but I didn't see him using it a lot. So I was like, oh, sure the guy's just using it or whatever he's like no no no. i'm usually sitting beside her on the couch and she's texting things in but we found a way for it to like have us talking about the things and it's really working it goes on for 15 minutes about like oh yeah but this would be really great and this would be really great and i walk away saying like maybe there is something and so the next day i started talking to all the rest of my users the third thing that happened was another friend who was starting to dabble in ai he was like just go to open ai's playground and start playing around with it. Ugh, all I see is people doing like tweet threads or like more marketing copy. And I come from marketing. The world does not need more copy in the world. It just doesn't. <laughs> but fine. I trust you. And you're like, okay, I'm going to go on to here. And it's essentially the playground is just like a text box. And it just says, just ask at things. I don't know. I just started with, you know, the things I knew, like a tweet thread or whatever. I wasn't really into it. I was like, you know, if this thing was worth its salt, it would tell me what school lunch is next week. On a lark, I sort of said like, hey, here's some things that my kids like. Tell me what next week's lunches are. And it didn't. And I'm not perfectly well because like I didn't know all the ways to like optimize and all that kind of stuff. But it did it sufficiently that I was like, wait a minute. If I'm understanding this correctly, this is a missing piece of like how you could actually do some of this stuff. 
But that was the point where I then reached out and said, I don't know a lot and I don't have a lot of time, but can you help me understand whether this use case is like with what I'm seeing actually has legs? And they were just like, yeah, yeah, like let's take this and then go try it on other things. To come back to it, these large language models, when people are talking about AI, there's like the visual models, you know, you can write something like a unicorn wearing a whatever jersey and it will give you a picture. But the thing that I'm talking about is like the large language models. It's important to understand why are they smart? What is the intelligence? The intelligence here is based on prediction. So it predicts what the next token, which is the next letter or the next word, like that kind of idea. And how it does it at a really, really high level is that it's just ingested a ton of information from the internet. It then knows to spit things out and then it's been trained. It's gotten like human reinforcement learning to say, okay, here are two kind of outputs and answers, which one's better? Then human will like yeah, it up and say like, this one's better or that one's better or whatever it is. Just do that a lot. And essentially you get this magic machine where you can throw things in and you get things out and it's not perfect and it does things called like hallucinations, which is make <laughs> up really convincingly. <laughs> but yeah. if you hit it with the right stuff, aka summarizing things or like classifying things, if you know what it can do well and get it to do those things, it's incredible. And it's getting better and all that kind of stuff. But I want to be very clear that what I had started with was software and humans. Those are the two tools I had in my toolbox. On this side, I was trying to make software work, which means it's affordable and it works really well, but it requires someone to operate it. And you don't give overwhelmed people yet another thing to have to like manage. So software, that was why I was finding limitations and I was finding it hard to make that work. On the other hand, people will say, oh, virtual assistants are the answer. And put humans, and there's a lot of folks that are kind of doing that kind of thing. I very much disagree with that approach as well for a lot of different reasons. It's called the invisible load for a reason. A lot of the context that we hold, especially for our families, is invisible and is nearly impossible to kind of force someone that isn't in the hole or isn't like constantly getting that feedback. It's really, really hard to pick up on the nuances of how I like things and the inconsistencies, by the way. And don't tell me I'm inconsistent. I'm just me and I run my family this way and don't lecture, right? Like I just do it that right. way. It's why we all talk about, I just need to clone me or another way of saying it. A lot of my friends and I will say, would just need a wife, like, you know, something like that in the joke kind of way. But at the essence of it is, can there be someone with my sensibilities, my preferences, my values, like the values of like knowledge of how our family does things with the capability of taking in these information that we keep on being inundated with and then just like send it to the things I already use, my work calendar, my SMS, whatever. So what I'm being specific about is where I only had software and humans and toggling it over here or toggling it over here had trade-offs that I just wasn't willing to make because it just didn't solve the problem. You now apply AI in there and now you were able to use three tools in your toolbox. What we now have with the experience is, is that parents will send us things you can send a voice memo. You can ramble about next week what's going on. We can turn that into events or to-dos. You can send us your school newsletter. You can text your grocery list. You can do whatever you want. Like just send us all the things. We can send it through and then organize it. And then we can understand the context of how you specifically want things done. You like these things sent to your work calendar, but you want these things sent to your home calendar or whatever it is. These things require a reminder in the morning and these ones require a to discuss list with your husband at 8 p.m. after bedtime. But importantly, we keep a human in the loop. And the human is like another parent. Anything that comes in, especially in this very early phase, it's not magic in the sense of like you can take all of this stuff, hit it at this like magical large language model, and then all is like happy and good. No, it's like still a process. All the things come in, every single thing is reviewed by a parent. But like reviewing it is much different than having to deal with and like sorted and all this other kind of stuff. And like me looking at it and seeing like, yep, this birthday party invite came in. Yep, it's adding like a reminder to buy a birthday present like a week before, just like they like it with a link to Amazon, all that kind of stuff. And then it goes on. Well, the more that we do that, the easier it is to then automate the super simple ones. Bananas goes to grocery list. Yep, don't need to review that one anymore, right? 
But then this crazy email that just came in from the school with 55 things on it with links and like all this kind of stuff. Let's take a look. Let's make sure we got all of it. And then, by the way, the way that we're building our system is sort of two level. Certainly for the families that we're serving right now, we take all that stuff in and we serve them. But we're also using it to train to say like, hey, did it get it right? Does it understand the shape of a soccer team that you might need to bring like orange slices for this game and this kind of thing? And we're doing RLHF, reinforcement learning human feedback is the term. Essentially what that means is that whatever spits out, we can create our own human feedback loops on it to say in a parenting instance, this is how you would want this to be dealt with. Again, I can't emphasize enough like it's so early, but it's so possible. We started this conversation a little bit of a like why I like to kind of tackle these really, really hard kind of problems that aren't very clear and have a lot of inequity in them. But what I kind of love is that here we have an opportunity where there's lots of conversations about like how it perpetuate inequity or racial bias and things like that. Or it's like these conversations about like um, takeaway jobs. I think in this instance, and the way that we're trying to use it is actually a really great example of how you can actually drive towards more equity. If you can use AI in this instance to create a force field and actually alleviate this invisible load for me, then I am actually more equal at an operating capacity to a lot of my male peers. That's equity. And that is the right way I think that we should be using AI to augment us. That's like a really fun first place to be starting. And when we're talking about taking away jobs, the way I like to think about this is, yes, take this job that I never asked for to be saddled with and that all of my friends and peers never asked to be saddled with, but is work. Let's start there. And it's very possible. It isn't all AI. It's like a very careful orchestration between human and software and AI. But it's both important and incredibly, I don't know, it's just fun to be able to be at the forefront of what's being commercialized with the mundane bits of the DMV and soccer things and like all that kind of stuff. Well, if you're on the end of a parenting email, I'll give an example. Like we get one email that has a link to a Word doc where the images are pasted in and then you have to like manually type the image of the the Girl Scout meeting and nothing against the Girl Scouts, nothing against any of these organizations. No, no, no it's all of that. It's, it's everyone. Work. It's every single thing where you have to go in. And I got my MBA two years ago. And in that program, two of my partners for our final project were parents. And one of them said, I would pay a subscription fee for someone else to read all of the emails. Just put them all in one place. I just want them all in one place. And so like the desire is out there. Every parent oh, is, is dealing with this. And I also think something that is overlooked that's really important about the kinds of problems like this are the amount of leverage you get from freeing up this time from millions and millions of people. This is the kind of technology, you know, we talk about hacks and efficiencies and like burritos delivered to your door. Sure. But also what about all of the unpaid labor that's not seen, that's not part of the economy, that is work being done? It's so frustrating that you and me and Eve and (laughs) Jessica are each entering every soccer game into our calendar. And the most innovative thing is to mark recurring event. Exactly. That's so cool. Preaching to the choir. (laughs) Right. For me, I can vary on the side of this is just a practical application of like technology all the way through Bragi Activist, which is we look at the minutes of men in very different way than we look at the minutes of women. And I think the minutes of women are just as worthy of saving as the minutes of like broadly men. And that's why I do this (laughs) personally. Yeah. So we're going to have to come back in like six months or 12 months and see how it's going. Happy to. Because I'm so excited for you and I can feel the energy inside of this. So how are you building going forward and how are you onboarding new parents? It still seems like it's a bit manual. You're kneading the dough for lack of a better analogy. Up to now, nothing's moving as fast as you ever wanted to. But up to now, like the last couple of months, it's been very manually just trying to figure out like what's working. And before you like overbuild, it's just being figuring out like, okay, it needs to work in this way. This is how information needs to come in. This is how parents need to know what happened to it and all this kind of stuff. 
essentially we've been using like the last like i don't know six weeks to like rebuild everything from the ground up the last three years there's lots of bits that have worked that people have loved but they didn't come together in a package that actually made complete magic and now we have that ability to kind of do that so we're building everything from the ground up that has built in the ai capabilities with the human feedback with the software bits and we're building that so literally starting next week we are now onboarding every single week a cohort of new families if there is slowness that i feel but it's carefulness i feel a responsibility especially through covid it's almost like the medical term of do no harm there's yeah. so many people that have been wanting and needing any solution in this space listen like my inbox is usually flooded with people saying like i feel so overwhelmed can you help kind of ideas this is not just like a superficial kind of thing for me i've talked to women and parents and dads and everyone who are like just completely at their wits end on this stuff when i say i'm not creating a wait list or like this beta thing to be like oh fancy and like it truly is i don't want to release it to everyone until it's at a point where it just works out of the box and it's not at the point where it works out of the box it works hallelujah but yeah. it still requires parents that very much understand there's still partnership that you need to tell me when something doesn't work or you need to tell me that right. this wasn't accurate or you didn't like it there and you would have rather there it over there so the people that we're letting into our beta right now still very much have that ability to have a little bit of understanding of like if it isn't in the exact time or the right format or something i need the people that are able to give that feedback and help us build it and be better so we're probably still going to be in beta for the next two to three months which in the overall term of like three years isn't that long but i really just want to make sure it works we're getting families signing up obviously from like around the world and right now we're focused on families across the u.s then canada then everywhere else for me it's i don't want to lose sight of the thing which is there's a problem this can actually solve it let's not get ahead of ourselves it's super exciting but like let's make sure it actually works and of between now and what i call like back to school for me the biggest thing is as the chaos of back to school this year in august kind of hits i really want this beautiful thing to just be there where parents can just hit it at will and it'll just give you your fall schedule or whatever this is where you need to be this is where whoever else needs to be this is what next week's school lunches are all of that stuff and then you can just be like yep fix that or you need to fix that and then it's just done and everyone knows it i mean how dreamy can you imagine getting the executive summary in your inbox in the morning of like this is what your day is and when you go to bed at night you don't have to make that up the yes. calendar is going to tell me tomorrow and i can go to bed do you have like a user manual of preferences when you onboard people I'm imagining, you know, eHarmony back in the day had like a million things you had to go through no, to check off your preferences. That. No. Okay. <laughs> All right. Again, that's where I say the limitation of software. You cannot do that on a life. And you cannot have toggles on like likes dentist appointments on no school days, but likes this on school days. The point about like how these AI models can work is that it can take that information in natural language and it can make those modifications for your family and not mine. Right. In an old school kind of world, that's like a preferences and setting page where you have to individually kind of create those toggles. And it really is brittle because you start to make the whole system very rigid. In this world, we're still testing and learning and what's the best way to kind of do all this. But you can literally start using language to just say, nope, I don't want it like that. I want it like this or whatever else. Well, and this is what the learning tools are that I think is different. I think this is why some people struggle, myself included, with hiring virtual assistants is because you actually have to be so exacting and specific and self-aware to know your preferences. I want the meetings exactly. on the fourth week of the month when I don't have this, but there can't be more than two meetings a day. Like the rule set's really complicated. And what AI can do is actually learn, like Sarah never fixed the appointments that I scheduled on Thursday. Exactly. So Thursday must be the best day. And that's the invisible part of AI that's so cool. Okay, I want to ask you about two more things. One thing I want to ask you about is care force. And another thing I want to ask you about is therapy. And I want to go to therapy first. Can you talk a little bit about your mental health journey through this? Because I know that's something that you mentioned before we got on this call. Yeah. So I think this is like a really critical one. It's so funny to try to look at the journey kind of looking backwards because like 
I can't tease out COVID from the startup piece, from all the other kind of things. So I can only kind of understand it all as one piece. Mental health has been a journey in the sense that I first experienced my first and worst bouts of anxiety and depression when I was in business school. But this was like a time where I was either any combination of young, we didn't talk about this. I was at Harvard. Like, what did I possibly have to be anxious or depressed about? Mm. Of course, in retrospect, there's lots of different things, right? Like you throw a kid that never was in any of these environs into this situation. There's a lot to be anxious and like insecure and all the things about, especially when you don't have the tools. But all I knew was, I don't know what this is. And even talking about it, I can feel like I'm now attuned to that feeling of tightness there. All I knew was I launched from there into consulting. And I was that constant phase of like just completely out of my depths. I felt like out of my depths. And I never sought help because I think in my world there, I thought help equated to like medication and stuff like that, which it can for a lot of people. But there was no avenue for me to talk about. This is maybe like 10, 15 years ago. So I didn't even know what the range of who to even go to. So fast forward, we get to COVID and like now everyone's being pushed to any kind of like limitations. For me, I tend to do my best in motion. And motion means going to places. Obviously, needless to say, that certainly wasn't there. Worse than that, my husband at least was able to go to his office and like work. I worked from like, and you can see it, like I can literally almost touch my walls. There came a point where I was like, this is really not good. And if we're not fixing anything else and like work is still very nebulous, I need to go put this part of me first and go figure it out. Thankfully, at this point, like I got connected to a phenomenal therapist and learned about CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. Behavioral therapy. Yeah. I think some combination of the right time, the right person being like the right like therapist and the right approach. Because for me in that time, I had the space to be able to kind of work through these things. The way that I've experienced it, I need some kind of tools to work with. The idea of stopping a thought in its track and like trying to examine like the evidence behind it and all that kind of stuff. There was other pieces, but I found that when I would start to go into these kind of spaces, I was able to stop it in its track a lot faster and better. But I will also say I was able to process stuff from Poppy, from before, from all of that stuff that I've never processed. I tend to be someone who's like, here's a goal, let's go at it. We'll figure it out, like just go. I do credit that process for allowing me to be standing here today. Because I think if I hadn't been able to work through a lot of the feelings of Poppy, of being able to like actually tap into why I do the work that I do, I think I probably would have called it earlier. I can't know for sure, but I felt more whole and I felt more comfortable with myself to sort of persist through the unknown, this version of me anyways. Whereas before, I think that level of uncertainty would have put me into like just an anxious state like every day that I wouldn't have been able to kind of pull out of that I remember being in more during the poppy days. Again, hard to say. We grow, we live, we are different. Yeah. But I think founders struggle a lot to go find the right kind of mental health. It's expensive. We're talking about like just paying ourselves. That was my biggest problem. I couldn't figure out how to afford it. And this is me with all the kind of things I couldn't figure out how to justify it. And that's a shame because this is just as necessary, if not a lot more. And then it was just like having to make the commitment to do it. But I think for founders, this is the support that we need. I don't need like a CRM or I don't need connections to like more hiring. I mean, that would be nice. Yeah, right. The help that my investors, the ones that are like stuck with me and through with me, and then The ability to access this kind of stuff, I think, is the reason very few people are necessarily going to find their hit on the first go in the first like 12 months and all that kind of stuff. This is a game of endurance and of persistence and of grit. And we like to use those words, but we don't necessarily like to talk about what it takes to be those words. And I think this was a big part of it for me. There's so much more I could go into. And this reminds me of the conversation we had with Dr. Pooja Lakshman, what she's building with Gemma. Exactly. And so many interesting therapy innovations. I'll share one anecdote. I remember talking to, I was with a lot of young men in my startup days. And I was always talking to them. I was like, you're trying to optimize your body. You're trying to optimize your product. Why not your mind? 
why wouldn't you go have someone look at your mind and tell you like, hey, these are strange patterns that you have. Here are some tools you can use. I studied psychology in undergrad. So like I've been going to therapy since forever. I mean, I'm also white and I grew up in Palo Alto. So that may contribute to it as well. But now I'm getting sidetracked. Is there a high level care force update you can give? Because we ended on our last episode about starting care force. And I know that's a whole nother episode. So maybe we'll have to talk to you about that later. What's care force like today? Honestly, it's a little bit more in like maintenance mode, sort of followed the ebbs and flows of like COVID. I think that followed the shape of COVID a little bit more. It really was a creation out of COVID. And it was just this like cry for who's coming for the parents and realizing nobody is. I think in the very earliest months of like the pandemic, especially into like May, June, all that kind of stuff, there was a bunch of us that were like working in this space, but saying who's actually coordinating, collaborating in this realized that there wasn't anything. And so a lot of us sort of informally came together. Even I sort of informally spearhead a lot of this stuff. It really manifested itself in a beautiful monthly call and meeting of people that were working across care. And then as the months kind of went on, it sort of became different things as it needed to be different things for people. But mostly it's like a gathering place. For anyone that's working within care, it sort of cuts across academics and researchers and funders and entrepreneurs, that's like been an incredible thing. I do think like as we've come out of the pandemic a little bit and as everything has exploded and everyone's priorities have sort of like gone into like all these different places, it's an incredible kind of community and a gathering place. But what it needed to be for people was a place and a space to be able to talk about care and the state of care and like what's happening, especially through the pandemic when we weren't able to kind of do it elsewhere. And so I think it served like an incredible purpose then. Yeah. And we'll see where it kind of evolves. The really nice thing is none of us have tried to make it something that it isn't or doesn't like have to be a thing. And sometimes it's nice to have something grow organically, be organically, and then we'll see what it ends up. You know, I'm inspired by listening to you talk about AI with solving parent needs. I can see a version of this that collects and collates all of the people working on parenting to share out the high-level summary of like, hey, here are all the things. Don't forget to vote here, say this, support this, like that. Totally. Thank you so, so much. It's so cool to hear what you're up to and what you've been building and how much progress. And progress looks like hypothesizing, failing, hypothesizing, failing, testing, failing, testing, failing, right? It's so cool to see inside of that journey. I'm so hopeful for what's coming. Where do people find out about your work and your newsletter? And are you on social media? So if you want to follow me, I'm mostly on Twitter. So it's at a Patel Thompson. If you want to check out Milo, go to joinmilo.com. And then I have a newsletter that I write at on Substack. I think it's also a Patel Thompson. I should know that's a little bit offhand. And then there is a Substack from Milo. It's all into the joy that if people are interested on that side too. Thanks. Don't forget to sign up for the newsletter over at They Got Acquired. You can sign up for their newsletter at theygotacquired.com slash newsletter. It is a website and a company that's going to teach you everything you need to know about selling a business, from how to find a buyer to what to expect during the sales process, and how to navigate your life after the sale. What do you do after you sell a business? Personally, I've never been someone who's thinking about selling a business. I'm in a different place in my career and my life, but I love learning about it because it opens my brains to all sorts of possibilities. When you know more about how businesses work, how they're sold, who's buying them, and what you need to do to set up a business for sale, you can get better at building businesses, you can get better at setting it up from the beginning, you get better at understanding the market. Gosh, there's just so much I have learned from reading this newsletter. Just go to theygotacquired.com slash newsletter. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us today. It is a pleasure to be in conversation with you. You can find out more about everything we talked about and all of the show notes here on your podcast player, or you can head to our website, startupparent.com. 
I want to give another shout out to all of our amazing sponsors who help make this show possible. We are so grateful to get to work with you and partner with so many wonderful companies and organizations that are dedicated to making life better for entrepreneurs, female founders, and working parents. If you are interested in sponsoring the show and partnering with us, then head to startupparent.com slash sponsor, and you can send a note to our sponsorship team. Did you know that we have a new Substack and we have a secret podcast? Oh, yes, we do. Head to Startup Parents Substack. The link is startupparent.substack.com. I'll put the link in the show notes and check out our secret podcast. When you become a paid backer, when you upgrade your subscription and you join our community, you get lots of perks for being a community member. For our paid backers, I host a monthly private podcast where I dig into the nitty gritty of business building and parenting and everything in between. Listeners and readers get to submit questions, then I pick one or two each month and we dive deep into it. In addition, for our paid backers, we host our Startup Parent Monthly Book Club. This is where we get to talk about interesting books with other smart and interesting and kind people. And I run book club a little bit differently. You can read the book if you have time, but chances are you don't always have time to read the book. So the way I host book club is that anyone can join whether or not you've read the book because I give you a summary of it up at the beginning and then I frame up four questions from the book that we can talk about and you'll always be in rooms with other people that have read the book so we can share knowledge and wisdom. The purpose of book club is to have rich and interesting and insightful conversations not to judge you on whether or not you had a chance to read a book. So our secret podcast and our private book club those are just two of the perks that we offer for people who become community members and that's not all. I love getting to say that phrase. That's not all. There are actually a lot of other perks, and I'm going to let you discover them when you go to our Substack. Last but not least, if you liked this episode, I would be grateful if you would leave us a review. It means a lot to the show, and it helps other people find us. So definitely leave a review. I read every single one of them, and I'm so grateful when I see your name in my inbox and when I see that people are leaving more reviews. So thank you for doing that. Thank you, thank you, thank you for being here, and I will see you on the next episode.